Hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host, and we are back for an episode investigating the sacred. And today I have a fellow named Sean Van So and a stack of books over here to introduce to you guys. Uh, one of, of course, being his. Sean Van So has written a book called AP Psychedelics, and uh, it's going beyond set and setting to achieve visionary virtuosity. Sean created the, the first church of David Bowie. It's a collision of pop culture and entheogens and ceremonial process that people go through who have a lot of experience in the world of psychedelics. So I, I guess what I'll, I'll begin with saying is, uh, this is a disclaimer, the following interview has nothing to do with psychological or medical advice. Um, anytime you're considering using these sacramental substances, do so um, with an awareness that there are doors you can open that are um, overwhelming. So uh, be sure to consult the people that you need to consult who will guide you through a proper process. Of course, everything's changing nationally in the United States in the world of psychedelics, so it's an important time to, uh, to, to be able to go um, proceed through those avenues where you have a real curated environment that people have cared for and um, your s safety set and setting have been ensured. Uh, but Sean, Sean offers a lot of ideas for how to... Um, <laughs> Uh, further expand this process. And I guess this picks up on a thread that um, um, Dr. Bill Barnard and I, or I actually picked up with Dr. Bill Barnard a few episodes ago with the Santo Daime tradition, uh, and that what Sean's proposing and talking about in the First Church of David Bowie is a new religious movement and a new sacramental process, a new ceremony. Um, and it's compelling, interesting, and um, and Sean's an incredibly likable person, so it's it's fun to talk to um, it's fun to talk to him about this. So, with the disclaimer said, um, I want to uh, introduce Sean and his work, <clears throat> and then we'll we'll move on to some other things and get started. So, first of all, Sean, I'll read his bio. Sean Manso was born in Boston, Massachusetts, the son of a married Roman Catholic priest and a former sister of Saint Joseph. At various points, he has been a mall janitor, a lounge act guitarist, a failed paratrooper, a San Francisco bike messenger, a video game animator, a Muay Thai instructor, homeless, an East Village NYC bartender, a failed novelist, a gym owner, and a video game industry executive. In addition to AP Psychedelics, going beyond set and setting to achieve visionary virtuosity, he is the author of the spiritual autobiography, Spotify the Gnostics, Here's the First Church of David Bowie. The Coaching Manual by the Numbers, a practical guide for instructing multimodal GPP training, and the novel Lap Dance, and the short story collection You Are Not a Planet and Other Stories. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his dog Jones. And please see below to the link to purchase the book. It's a $10 book on Amazon, and it's a fun read for anybody who has been mining this territory. So thanks, Sean, for the interview. Thanks for connecting, and, um, and just thanks for the inspiration. So uh, I want to jump ship real quick. You'll get to Sean in a moment. Uh, quickly, a couple things coming up on the Sacred Speaks. In this, uh, in this order, I think, the first is a, a conversation I'm excited about, Hermetic Spirituality and the Historical Imagination, Altered States of Knowledge in Late Antiquity by Walter Hanengraf. And this was a cool conversation at the right time of my life, and I'll be releasing that episode in a few weeks. And coming up, I have an interview with Edward Beaver on the realities of witchcraft and popular magic in early modern Europe, culture, cognition, and everyday life. We're going to jump into witchcraft. And then at some point, I've got uh, 
an interview with Doug Lynham, um, From Monk to Money Manager, uh, a former monk's financial guide to becoming a little bit wealthy and why that's okay. Uh, Doug's a really good guy and a fascinating, he's just a fascinating human, so I'm excited to have him on. Uh, of course, I'm excited for all these things. A couple of notes. I want to point you to the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative clinic that my wife and I created a while back. Um, certainly look us up at the Center for HAS, link below. Um, look at the Sacred Speaks, of course, lots coming on there. <laughs> and eventually this whole thing will be buttoned up, but it's taken forever, so check it out when you can. And as always, check out the music from Modern Nations. At the end of the episode, you can hear the full selection from the theme music of this podcast called Clouds by Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. Um, and I think that's it for now. Um, oh, I do. I have a couple of, um, of just so you know, uh, uh, people who a couple of testimonials. So, so somebody who, had, who attended the first church of David Bowie says, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced. The journey that Shaman Pa guided me on helped me to rediscover parts of my soul I'd forgotten. Through familiar story and song, I connected with the eternal truth that reside in all of us. I've never considered how powerful and safe a shaman-guided medicinal experience could be until the first church of David Bowie showed me. So there here are some, uh, a couple of folks who've, who've been and, uh, and returned to experience. Um, my experience was transformative. I really wasn't sure what to expect, but I trusted Sean fully and was not disappointed. I worked through some tough points to emerge with a sense of strength and positivity that I could hold on to for many years. And uh, Sean's practice could be called a ceremony, but it might as well call be, be called a service. He leads people through what starts off seeming like a dazzling psychedelic disco dance, party, concert, performance, art piece but draws on all those present in an immersive experience that goes far beyond that. And as he draws you in, he simultaneously pulls you down into the depths and through the rabbit hole. And when you've come out the other side, ascended, you feel energetically cleansed. So a lot of cool things Sean's doing, and um, check out his book. Uh, for now, that's it. Let's leave it there. Sean, as we were talking a second ago, I'm stoked for many reasons to chat because we're going to speak a couple of different languages as we navigate this territory. One being an academic language, which you have and you reference through the book. Then also a lot of pop culture and ecstatic experience and alternate states of consciousness. You're, you're up to some really cool things. I've been very eager to chat and... Um, I have Tom Hatzis to thank for this and check him out in an earlier interview. And, and here's, here's your book. I will look below and be directed to Tom and his work. But for now, we're talking about your book, uh, AP Psychedelics, Going Beyond Set and Setting to Achieve Visionary Virtuosity. And uh, Sean Manso, it's good to sit with you today, man. I, I really it's, great. it's great to be here. It's really nice to meet you. Yeah, you too. So uh, we're going to dive in and, um, and we'll, we'll see kind of how we, how we navigate. But I would like to structure part of not only your personal history and, of course, what this is that you're writing about and mm -hmm. how you got to this. Because you're, you're a, I don't know, you're, you're like a practitioner and a, a ceremonial uh, curator. You know, I, I don't know what you call yourself, but that's what comes to mind. I mean, you're, you're setting up these spaces for the listener or the viewer. We're going to make sense of this. 
Um, there's a lot of academic and intellectual and ecstatic currents that that are, as you said earlier, making their way through the collective unconscious into popular culture and the sciences. And we're in a radical period of time. So uh, uh, again, your personal history, what this thing is, uh, and then the what you're seeing as you're setting up these ceremonial spaces. Please just in, give us an introduction to you first, and then I'm going to ask questions as we go. Okay, uh, so I am uh, the child of a married Roman Catholic priest and, a, and an ex-nun. Um, in an early age, around the age of 12, I, I rejected Christianity and kind of went to war with my dad mm-hmm. about that for a few years. But the apple didn't v- fall very far from the tree. Uh, in college, I, uh, I worked with, or I experimented, I should say, with psychedelics recreationally like so many of us did. Yeah. And I... I inadvertently, I, I had a spont- one night that was supposed to be just a good time hanging out with my friends, turned into a full blast ontological revelation. And I had a spontaneous uh, intuition of what turned out to be emanationism in this, I, in this, this sense that there is a, you know, an ultimate ground of being that in contemplating itself divides and then in further contemplation continues to divide and ends up creating a reality that's um, organized into levels in each level sort of being fractally self-similar to the next. I'd never been exposed to any such ideas, but they, when they arrived, they hit me like a hammer. And I ended up writing my undergrad thesis about that. That was, that was this period where a book called Chaos, I forget what the subtitle was, the author was James Glick. It was this popular science book about um, chaos theory and fractal mathematics, which at the time were just starting to become known. Mm-hmm. And I saw a, a, a similarity between the way um, uh, certain systems that seem chaotic on the whole are actually turn out to be fractal when you when you graph out their behavior over time. Uh, I saw a similarity between that and the way consciousness is organized, um, according to the perennial philosophy and mysticism. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about that for a second, just just so people can kind of be oriented, perennial philosophy, chaos theory? So I... Um, I wrote up a, a brief, luckily I had a friend who was a journalism major who sat with me. I just asked him, please just stay with me because I was in really way over my head. And he took extensive notes about the experience and I was able to reconstruct what happened later. And um, and so based on that, I wrote a paper and I brought it to a, a professor at UMass where I was attending named Julius Lester. When I had heard him describe himself in a lecture as a mystic. And I just wanted to see what he would think of it. And he, he read it over. He had this ability to speed read. It was really amazing. And then he looked at me and he said, you need to read Aldous Huxley's The Perennial Philosophy and Evelyn Underhill's um, Mysticism, and then we'll talk. And so I went and I read them. And so Huxley is the author of uh, 1984. No, no, excuse me, that's Orwell. Huxley was brand new, uh, Brave New World. Brave New World, yeah. Um, but he also wrote this book, um, in the perennial philosophy in which he took all these quotes from different um, religious traditions around the world and kind of laid them out side by side so you could see that they seem to be more or less talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that is an, actually an old idea called the perennial philosophy. I've seen it uh, credited to Leibniz, the German mathematician Leibniz, but it probably mm-hmm. goes back further than that, you know. And there's certain sorts of, there do seem to be certain base claims that are common to religions throughout the world, or, or at least especially their, their mystical traditions you know that there is an ultimate all and that it's it's essential its essence is love and that you can experience this directly and in doing so you will change your life right 
so there's this idea that seems to be it's it's represented in different ways in different traditions that the, that reality that that man is truly created in God's image or another way to put that is that human consciousness is organized in the same way as ultimate consciousness is and they're sort of like fractally self-similar that means that like a fractal is something that when you you can look at any feature of it and when you zoom in on it you'll see the same the whole again and if you zoom in on a tiny little part of that you'll see the whole and zoom in at any at any level that's just how it how it works and it suggests this model of existence it's rather like uh matryoshka dolls those russian nesting dolls mm -hmm. where one is within the next within the next within the next within the next all the way down to to our level and that was a so when i saw that in in chaos theory and realized oh there might be some overlap here that was what i i wrote my uh my thesis on but that was the end of my i'm not an academic i have, i should stress that right i am i'm a I'm, i have a lay interest in all this stuff and i've sort of kept up with it over the decades um and then i i never expected to be in the place where i am now and doing the work that i am i had started i had sort of hit a, prof a professional and personal crossroads in 2016 and i found an ayahuasca group i've been reading about ayahuasca ayahuasca was having a moment in, around that time and i had, was thinking about going down to the jungle but then i met a guy who was running a he, he had apprenticed with a shipibo um indian down in peru and apparently ran a pretty tight ship and so i started sitting with him and i ended up sitting with him about i think 34 times altogether um in the in the context of those ceremonies you know one of the one of the um bits of received wisdom in the ayahuasca space is that the, the spirit of the plant will talk to you you know mother i people you'll hear people say things like mother aya told me or aya told me this and at one point aya told me that i was a priest from a long line of priests and if there was a priest gene that i had it and i needed to find a way to put that into practice and at, and at first I thought that maybe that meant trying to become an ayahuascaro, but that was not so appealing to me for a number of reasons. I really liked, so for, for anybody who's not familiar with the way ayahuasca works, ayahuasca is primarily in, in South America, it's a medical practice. And people go to see their ayahuascaros for treatment of various ailments, whether they're physical or, or mental or spiritual. And the, the way Matt, the ayahuascaro I worked with put it, the ayahuasca turns on the lights in the operating room, but what really does the work are all the plants that the practitioner has done diets with. And that's, and so that's what, that's what works. And, and the way it works, the, the way the plants help you is they, they teach the practitioner a song called an Ikaro. And so the practitioner sings the song to you and that's what somehow energetically heals you. So I found that appealing, the idea of singing, because I wasn't a singer, but I'd always, I'd always wanted to be. But at the same time, to become an ayahuascaro, you have to do these long dietas, these, these diets, which involve celibacy and prolonged periods of isolation. And I was already feeling, you know, celibate and isolated enough at the time. I didn't, I didn't need any more of that stuff, you know. Um, but, I, but I was entertaining that notion. And then the other thing, too, is there's a fairly strong and, you know, pache to anybody that I, I might possibly offend here. But I'm, I'm not much of a hippie. And I don't resonate with a lot of, with some of like that sort of like hippie-ish nature energy it's wonderful i think it's beautiful it's just not me and there was a strong sort of seeing these you know people from north america dressing up as if they were peruvian indians and stuff was not really my bag and i wasn't really sure how i would fit into that 
but I sort of left it on the back burner. And at the time I, I had written this, so I had a background professionally. I've been a, uh, I've been a bike messenger and I've been a bartender and I've been a failed novelist, but I, I was also in the video game industry as an animator. And I, um, and I also owned some gyms and I, on the East coast and I developed a teaching method uh, for instructing exercise based on my background as an animator and wrote this great big book about it. So in 2016, I was traveling a lot. Every month I was going around the country doing seminars and stuff. It was kind of like, it was working. And this one, in May of, uh, excuse me, it wasn't 2016, it was 2017. In May of 2017, the weekend that I would have been sitting with the ayahuasca group, I had to travel. I had to go to Cleveland to teach a seminar. But I wanted to do something. I wanted to do some kind of ceremonial work because I wanted to move forward with this idea of trying to become a practitioner of some sort, you know? I wanted to learn to navigate those spaces a little bit better. I had some mushrooms that had been sitting in the back of my freezer for six months. And I'm sorry, am I just, is this okay that I'm just sort of monologuing you? Yeah. Well, actually, it, I've been thinking about this because it, the fact that you're not an academic is such a strength in this context. That That is one of the reasons. I've been so excited to chat just because it's it's going to draw from me in different ways. It's going to like, I, so yeah, monologue yeah. your ass off, man. Okay. And so, and then, and the thrust of my work is bringing this stuff into a pop cultural context and making it available to people totally. in a way that academics and people who are too wrapped up in traditional ceremonial, ceremonial magic can't, you know, because they're, it's just too sort of like obscurist. Yeah. Um, just, just, well, my... it, just to relate to that for a second, my my dissertation was on the psychology of fame. And so I wrote about Bowie and Iggy Pop and Bono and Joni Mitchell and all that. Like, awesome. I love this subject. So you're, that's what I mean is we can speak a language in that territory. Yeah. I'm really stoked. Yeah. So, so yes, go. I, I, I love okay. where you're going. Okay. So I, so, I, uh, so I had these mushrooms and I was like, well, I'm going to make up my own little ceremony you know, and try to model it on sort of what Matt did. Um, you know, I had some, cause he'd been, I was assisting, which only basically meant like I took the money and I helped people to the bathroom, but I also blew <laughs> tobacco smoke on them if they were having a hard time in ceremony, Yeah. you know? Um, so I knew, I knew how to use mapacho to sort of like blend us to bless the space and stuff like that. And so I put on and I was like, well, and for once I'll be able to use my to music that I want to listen to, you know, cause, cause an ayahuasca ceremony is, is silent except for the times when the practitioner is singing the Icaros. The rest of the time, it's just you're sitting in the dark and in the quiet. And so I, I, you know, I had a bunch of stuff. I put on like Mystery of the Bulgarian Voices and Iron and Wine and just sort of stuff that seemed like mellow and like good to work with. You know? stuff that stuff that would have passed Maps recommendations for how to use music in yeah. that space, right? But then I put on a record that is really important to me in my, in my personal life. It's called In the Airplane Over the Sea by an indie rock band called Neutral Milk Hotel. And this record came out in 1998. And so just as a little historical context, the story behind it, which is somewhat apocryphal, is that Jeff Mangum, who is the singer-songwriter behind the band, um, had read Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl as an adult and kind of had a collapse over it just spent weeks just weeping and weeping and weeping and thinking about her and as a way to process those feelings he wrote a song cycle about inventing a time machine to try to go back and save her and it became this record in the airplane over the sea which is really precious to a lot of people um even though it's relatively unknown among a certain set of like indie rock bands it's a really important record so i put that record on I'm listening to it and I'm grooving to it and everything. And then um, 
I did a little, uh, you know, one another thing that I learned about from the ayahuasca space is using hape, which is a, a tobacco snuff that has, um, often has extra psychoactive ingredients. So I had some called Matsi's Extra, which has a little bit of toey in it. And so this stuff is not psychoactive by itself, but when you use it in combination with another psychedelic medicine, it can, it changes your visionary experience, you know? So I did a, so I did a little hape and I, and I saw this beautiful, like it, it, it was this sort of idyllic backyard, American nighttime, uh, summertime scene, you know, like a, a backyard patio with, with Japanese lanterns and lights and stuff like that and little kids playing and it was wonderful. And then <laughs> the song started playing called O Comely on the, and O Comely is a, is a, it's just Mangum and his guitar. And it's this dirge, it's this really like funereal dirge. And it's effectively, as I say in AP Psychedelics, I describe it and as in a Michelle Gondry science of sleep kind of magical realist way. It's about Anne and about her terrible fate. And as I'm listening to this track, I start, you know, I'm starting just doing like a gentle sort of rocking. And then I started to feel like I started to, the sadness of what I, of, of the song started to overtake me. And then spontaneously, I started getting images of the camps. I saw like these windowless brick buildings and barbed wire fences and churn frozen mud. And as the more I saw that stuff, you know, you're seeing it basically, it's like a, there's a, there's a strong parallel between the psilis, like psilocybin experience and dream states. In a lot of ways, like the psilocybin, once you get past the, uh, like, ooh, the walls are rippling or whatever, like, especially when you're working just with your eyes closed, where you start to see in your, what I call your visionary space, which is just, you know, your mind's eye, is a lot like, it's a lot like dreaming, or at least like hypn hypnagogic sorts mm -hmm, of images. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm seeing these images and I'm getting these stronger and stronger emotions in them with that, those emotions start to become so strong that it starts to feel like this. There's an electric current flowing through my body, like starting from my feet and coming up through my body, which I'd never experienced before on, on psychedelics. And I, you know, I had you know good 50 trips under my belt at that point between ayahuasca and LSD and mushrooms and stuff. This was a new thing for me. And it, this emotion, as the emotion got stronger and stronger, my sort of davening in my seat got stronger and stronger. And I, I found myself clenching my fist because something was telling me to sort of like hold on to the energy, which I did. And then when the song reached its climax, I spontaneously took in a big breath and opened my hand and blew the energy that I felt like I'd been containing in my fist out into the room and then did it the other, to the other side and then just sort of fell back and was like, what the hell was that? Hmm. And had a, had a distinct impression that the mushrooms themselves were sort of like, what was that? Do that again. And, and so I started, I started experimenting and, st and found just for the rest of the evening, because at that point, that was probably like, I was probably peaking at that point. I was a couple hours in. And, um, and I found that I was able to get different aesthetic effects from working with different songs. And that was fascinating to me. Like what I was seeing in my head would, would, would sort of change in character and content um, and intensity based on the, the song that I was working with. And I wasn't at all sure what that possibly meant. But there was only one way to find out, and that was to go do it again. <laughs> and so the next weekend, I was back at it again. And I and I I know this this time I was working, I think, with a particularly um, strong strain of cubensis called penis envy. They're very they're very visual. Mm -hmm. But this this night, so I made another playlist and I was listening to it. But about two hours in, it seemed like it was crapping out, and I was like, oh damn. Maybe I just did this too soon, you know? Like maybe I I built up tolerance and it's not working. 
but I, and I, I was like, but I just, I only had a limited, very limited supply. And I was like, well, I wasted this. I should have waited. But I remembered somebody tell me that if you smoke some weed, you could, you could, in, you could sort of like reawaken the mushrooms. And, and I had a pre-rolled joint. I wasn't, not much of a pot smoker, but I had some around. And I, I was living in a tiny little studio apartment in Seattle. And I went outside and I don't know what possessed me, but I took three hard hits of pot in about two minutes. It was literally like, and then, and then again, and then again. And then when I went back inside, my hands, I was shaking because I could feel like something was coming on like a freight train. And um, I put on this song by uh, the Smashing Pumpkins called Cherub Rock. It was, it was from a record called The si Siamese Dream. And this song was important to me in my youth. And this is one of the things that ends up being important for this work is um, uh, some songs are better th for this stuff than others. And songs that you, the first time you heard it, you have to, you're like, I need to hear that again. I need to hear that again. I got to listen to that again. Those are very efficacious. And listening to that song on that level of um, psychedelic uh, load just blasted me out into like way past, way into like you know the quote unquote ego death territory but what i always the, of course the, the ego death is not the end goal for me the ego death is is like have you ever seen watchmen yeah the the the, the movie and the comic mm -hmm. watchmen right when when the physicist i forget his real name who ends up being dr manhattan mm -hmm. ends up in that he has his like lab accident that tears him apart at a molecular level. Mm -hmm. That's the ego death, right? But the important thing is that he reassembled himself right. under his own will. And then he can work with that energy in a completely sort of coherent and lucid state. And over the, over the course of the last five years, that is what I've learned to do. And I'm now I'm gonna try to, so that's, so, so I ended up, I told a friend about it and he told me about a comic book called Phonogram. And in Phonogram, there are these young hip Brits in the 90s who do they do magic like harry potter style magic but the way they do it is they listen to pop music and that gives them the fuel that they need in order to cast these spells and i was like oh i just felt this moment of recognition and i decided to call what i was doing phonomancy which is what they called it which made me a phonomancer somebody who could do basically magic in the sense of transforming my consciousness by using music in in this very intentional way in this context so I, for the rest of the summer, I experimented and then two really significant things happened. One was I decided to combine this practice with sigil magic. And so for anybody who doesn't know, a sigil is a, is a symbol. It's a kind of witchy looking glyph that encodes an intention. It, it comes out of the practice of chaos magic, which is basically like the 70s punk rock version of ceremonial magic. And so, and I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I, I wrote out an intention. I wrote, teach me to do magic, David Bowie. And then I, and then the pro and what you do is you cross out the vowels and any repeating consonants, and then you combine them and to get a certain shape. And I, and, and what you do then is you charge it. And there's a variety of ways to do that. Grant Morrison, the comic book writer did it by bungee jumping, by holding the sigil in his hand. And the most popular technique is you masturbate. And at the moment of orgasm, you look at the sigil and the, the idea is that somehow that imprints it upon your personal unconscious from there it makes its way out into the collective unconscious and acts as a seed for a new reality the results and i don't know about all that but what i do know is that i took i took that and i had um i had this playlist and there were some bowie tracks on there and so i had uh i want to say there was like uh 
I know there was Queen Bitch was on there and Rebel Rebel, but the song where it ended up working, I did, oh, so, so I, it started with White Light, White Heat, the cover from, uh, from the D.A. Penny, Penny Baker uh, concert album, right? And then, and so I was looking at it and I concentrated on it. Then when they go, ah, at the end, I'm like concentrating on it and nothing happened. And then Moon Age Daydream started. And then I was in having a full blast 3D lucid dream vision like nothing I'd ever seen before. And what I saw was myself. And I was like, it's middle of summer. I'm in this tiny little apartment. I'm shirtless. I'm in a, just a pair of black shorts and, um, and dancing. That's how I was, that's how I, I realized I could, because uh, this stuff made me anxious, especially at the doses I was working with. I needed to do something with the physical sensations of being on that much, that many drugs. And the way that I worked with it to prevent it from becoming agita was to dance. And so I was dancing with these songs and I saw myself on stage shirtless and dancing. And there was a crowd in front of me, maybe a hundred or 150 people. And I knew that I, in this space, I was on mushrooms, but so were they. And they were looking up, but they weren't looking at me. They were looking at this sigil projected on the screen behind me, the sigil that I had made that stood for teach me to do magic, David Bowie. And they were also trying to, what they were trying to do was what I had done, which was make an energetic connection with the archetype that Bowie represented, not Bowie himself, but what he represented in popular consciousness, which is the magician in terms of like the, you know, the second card in the tarot deck. And I further understood that it was a kind of, it was a party. We were having a dance party, but it was also a kind of class. And I was leading it. I was the instructor. I was on stage, not to be, not to be watched for my performance, but to model for them how to perform this sort of like whatever it was that we were we were doing and and then i came out of it almost five minutes like it this whole thing just this sense of and so this is where it starts to get weird <laughs> this here here's where it starts to get yeah, weird. not not anything else no 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 no, no. so <laughs> mushrooms mushrooms are notorious for giving people messianic ideas right they you go in and you come back and you're like i'm john the baptist i'm jesus christ right and I had that happen to me. I wasn't told I was John the Baptist or Jesus Christ, but I was sort of shown this sort of, the only way I can sort of describe it is it, it looked like a, um, you know, the map of the Sephiroth from Kabbalah, the, the spheres, yes. the multiple spheres, right? Now imagine that as sort of being drawn with baseball bases, like as, as a sort of schematic, and then seeing that superimposed over a map of the Middle East. And I was, can you, can you visualize that? Yes. Okay. Um, and I was sort of, it was sort of explained to me that what was happening was an archetypal situation. I'm sorry that I have to say this out loud. It's humiliating and ridiculous, but this is what happened to me, right? It's, it was like, this is a, a, a world teacher arriving situation. And this is like, there are various like archetypal elements that are all um, in this certain relation. There's this energetic relationship between them that marks this sort of event and it's happening to you. How do you like that? Does that make everything worthwhile? Like this whole sort of like, because I had, I had ended up in a place in life where I was, my life made no sense to me whatsoever in terms of all my experiences and all the, the, the things that I had done and everything. But all of a sudden it was coming together in this. And, it, you know, when you have a, an experience like that, as, as you know, like the stuff hits with the weight of divine revelation. It's convincing, right? And I would, and the way I would describe it to you, I was excited to find out that you are, are, are you still um, working through your Jungian analyst training? 
No, I'm. I, I've got a doctorate in Jungian psychology. I, it's, okay, yeah. so you need you need to update your bio then. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> right. That's old, so, then, man. That happened a long time. That's good. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for the note. So okay, so so what I would regard this then, Doctor Price, is I I experienced an archetypal activation. And yeah. the archetypal and the archetype that got activated was the prophet archetype, uh-huh. right? Where you come back and from these uh, this experience and you have an absolutely irresistible urge to tell everybody what just happened, you know? Um, and, 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 and you just have to, you know. So so now at that point, you've got two choices. You can you can believe it a hundred percent and give in to what's effectively archetypal inflation, right? And go around yeah. strutting and telling everybody like, I've got a message from God and you need to listen to me. Or you can do what Jung said and maintain a sort of critical distance from the experience and be like, okay, that happened. I know it happened. I'm not going to try to tell myself it didn't happen, but what does that mean? You know, like, what is What is this? What could this possibly mean? And that is to my mind, for all these people who come back with these messianic ideations, they never have a plan and they never really have anything to say to my mind, except like, I am God, I'm God on earth. Now you should, you know, listen to my wisdom, but they don't really have anything new or interesting to say. It's just regurgitating mm-hmm. old mm-hmm. stuff. Right. And so the second part of this mm-hmm. is, so that happened. And then I kept, I kept going with this, but now I was afraid. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I don't, I don't want to be a mental case. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to like, I didn't want to tell anybody what had happened. But I kept experimenting. And then one day I had this amazing realization. I was looking at my playlist because I kept experimenting and I would delete a track and add a track. But over time, I had found this list of tracks. It was about it was about three and a half hours long. It was the length of time of a mushroom trip that were the most sort of efficacious for like seemed to get the best visionary results, because that's all that mattered to me. It's like what what seems to stimulate the greatest response from the from the mushrooms. And there was a there was like a. a what I called, I was calling the invocation of the divine mother, which was this sort of gent- this, this gentle uh, sort of chamber pop um, to sort of soothe me as I was, you know, coming on. And then there was, I was, I always had problems with anxiety. So I had programmed a block of like heavy and aggressive rock music. That was like, it just, it just pumped me up and got me through it. And with stuff like, like Jane's addiction and Mastodon and stuff like that, you know, being being a Gen Xer, of course, that was the the, the music that I went yeah, to. Yeah, right? I related so much with your but, music. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm gonna we'll get back to this in a second. But then there were after that, then I would relax, and there was a bunch of like like new wave and soul and funk, and that was mm-hmm. all. So all the all the aggressive rock stuff had masculine vocalists, and then mm-hmm. all the all the pop stuff had feminine vocalists, and then at the end, I still had those four songs from the end of um, in the in the airplane over the sea. It had occurred to me that I wanted to try to do something for the murdered children of the world, right? And I and I had constructed this little sort of ceremony at the end where I was listening to these songs. But what I realized was I was looking at the tracks is, so the hero's journey, of course, is this template for stories that um, seems to be common to, to myths and stuff around the world that was popularized by Joseph Campbell. And I know I'm saying... I'm, I know you know this, but I'm saying this for anybody who's totally yeah who might be listening, right? Um, and it goes in stages, and there's depending on who you talk to, there's as few as three or as many as 22 stages. But associated with every stage is is kind of an emotion, you know, like the uh, all these stories, any story that's constructed along the lines of the hero's journey or can be interpreted that way starts with the hero in the everyday world, and that to cite a familiar example, like like Luke Skywalker on Tatooine, 
wanting to get off the moisture farm and go off to the space academy or wherever he's going to go. That's the hero in the everyday world. He's, it's mundane. He's bored. But there's a problem. There's something lurking in the background, even though that's going to undermine all this stuff, right? And so that would be an emotion that would go along with that, that sort of like youthfulness or naivete or, or whatever. And then there's another one would be, uh, you know, um, the call to adventure, right? And that's the, the sort of stirring or like sense of possibility. But then often there's the refusal of the call, which is this like reluctance, right? So there's a, these different emotions. And so if what I realized looking at my playlist was that if I took each of the songs that I was working with as sort of having a target emotion, that was something that I had been thinking about, this idea that, that popular recorded music, every song that I was working with had been carefully engineered to create a really specific emotional response in the listener, right? And I cite the familiar examples I use are like, it could be a state of psyched up aggression, like Fight Fire with Fire by Metallica, mm -hmm. or Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, right? Or it could be a, a sense of like a melancholy, like Autumn Leaves by Frank Sinatra, right? There's every song that you listen to has been designed for that and to the extent that you enjoy it it's because you resonate with that emotion somehow it it, 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 it you felt that and you enjoy feeling that again like feeling like that again and that to a large extent is how we use music we either are feeling a certain way and want to reinforce it so we put on a song that makes us feel that way or we're feeling a certain way and we want to break ourselves out of that so we put on something to to cheer us up right so when I was looking at the, the tracks in my playlist, both for the rock part, the dance part, and the Anne Frank part, if I regarded each of them as representing an emotion, the emotions dovetailed almost exactly to the contours of the stages of the hero's journey. I hadn't meant to organize it like that at all. It just, it happened. It was spontaneous. And that hit me, again, like a ton of bricks. I'm getting actually getting goosebumps just now, just like remembering it, it was this, um, it felt like synchronicity right? Which is a, a meaningful coincidence. And, you know, what, for somebody standing outside it, well, it's just a coincidence, but the point of synchronicity is it means something to you. It hits you like, whoa, something happened here. Something came through me here. And then once I realized that, that came together with that vision I had had of being on stage and performing. And I realized that what, my, what I wanted to do was present what I, this this phonomantic right as I was calling it at the time as a theatrical experience. When was people, this? This was uh, the summer of 2017. Okay. Yep. So five five almost exactly five years ago, and um and that I was going to have these dance parties that were going to also somehow be theater and involve like costumes and lights and everything in which. I would do this work with other people. We would do it together. We would go through these things and have these, because what I had come to realize, I, I was, you know, there's a lot more to all this stuff than just the, the practice itself. There's almost, there is actually what I'm working on now is basically a new conceptual approach to religion. But this was the nascent beginning of what I consider my, my phonomantic method. So there's phonomancy, which is the practice of inducing visionary trance by listening to popular music while under the dose of a high dose of psychedelic right that's the actual practice phonomancy but then there's the phonomantic method and what the phonomantic method is um is that practice but also a, a a series of conceptual innovations and um the uh everybody's familiar with the idea of set and setting right that's this common idea that you know for an optimal psychedelic experience you want to go into it with the right mindset and you want to have a, an optimal setting which is Generally speaking, if from, from a therapeutic point of view, quiet, 
and, 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 and safe and, and as soothing as possible. In fact, that's the whole point of, of considerations of set and setting is to reduce the amount of stress that people are under, mm-hmm. right? What I've done is introduced three more S's, structure, stress, and skill. And, and it totally changes the way that you can use this stuff. Rather than being a, a, a passive recipient of the effects of the medicine, now you can have active agency and you can actually use it both to control the psychedelic experience and use it as part of a, of a, a, of a practical program of self-actualization. And so this stuff was basically, pack, I started, I was thinking about this, this idea of structure, like structure in terms of what that means in terms of this, this ceremony that I was putting together meant like putting it on a schedule, like you were gonna have something to do every minute of those four hours, right? Having a, a ceremonial structure to it, a beginning and a middle and an end, you know, like, but all, for me, that's like an invocation and a processional and then the main magical workings and then a recessional. It was going to have narratives and that there were going to be stories that would be told that would indicate the emotional target of each song to follow, to help the audience follow through it. And then there was also activities. There were specific things that you were supposed to be doing and they were on a gradation of, of difficulty. You know I mean? The first level is just being able to stand up and dance, even though you might want to sit down the mushroom might make you want to sit down. You actually have to be able to train yourself to have this overcome that tendency and get up and dance because dancing embodies the emotion of the song. And then from there, the next step is, is singing along with it because singing has singing is effectively a control system for the psychedelic, the psilocybin fueled control, uh, psychedelic experience. It both, it affects you in terms of cymatically, in terms of how the vibrations you're feeling in your body. But more importantly, it brings you into the narrative space of the song and helps you uh, feel that emotion. And that's something we all spontaneously do when we're alone in our cars and listening to our favorite song. We start singing along and, and really like getting into it. Right? And getting into it is the key because when you amplify the emotion and you keep amplifying on it, it and if you're on a sufficient dose, eventually the emotion grows so strong that you are no longer feeling your personal emotion, but starting to feel the collective human ex- uh, experience of that emotion. It's archetype. And so I am conjecturing, and this is based on my N equals one sample, that archetypes are not just these static images that you can encounter. And they're not just influences in your behavior, but they're sort of like these energetic currents in the divine mind, like the Gulf Stream. You know what I mean? Like, like, mm-hmm. like through, and you can actually, and another way to think about it is they're frequencies of the Godhead. If I like to draw the analogy between, you know, mystics talk about Godhead as being this white light that is love, like this, you know, eternal white light. But, you know, the sun sends white light too. But if you hold up a prism to it, you can see all the different spectrums of light within that white light. And to me, all the emotions that we experience are actually the emotions that the God experiences or the goddess experiences or however you want to put it. And it's what we feel is just the palest reflection of that. And so what this whole theatrical thing that I put together is an opportunity to train that with other people. I fully, and now I'm landing it, I'm bringing it home. So I fully believe that, that, uh, that anything you can do by yourself can be amplified and intensified by doing it alongside other people. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's going to us watching comedy or going to see live music or whatever, you know? Um, and that is certainly going to be, that's, that's, could possibly be true of the mystical experiences that um, that psychedelics can create. But in order for people to gather in groups 
you're gonna and do more than just lay there on their mats and have like you know like a technically speaking a uh, an ayahuasca experience is a group thing. You're in a group with people in the maloka, right? But everybody's on their mat and everybody's isolated. Everybody's just in their own thing. What I'm proposing is something where you're all coming together to have a uh, it, to share moments together. In order for that to happen, you have to have um, readily understandable activities. And you also have to have a, a modicum of self-control so that if you start to have difficulty, you don't spoil the experience for everybody else. You know, the stuff can be extremely stressful and you have to learn to be able to control yourself and deal with those internal stressors. And there's a model for this right now, which is Santo Daime. And so I, I've been wanting to go there. The last guy I interviewed was Bill Bernard, who just wrote a book called Liquid Light on the Santo Daime and a lot of correlations here. Yep. So, so much so, but the, but the, the joke that I make in AP psychedelics in my book is that if the, the cliched thing would be to say that, that the phonomantic, right. And it's entheotainments, which is my, my yeah. trademark for, for this ceremonial thing, right. Entheotainments <laughs> is if the cliched thing would be to say it's Santo Daime on steroids, but it's not really, it's Santo Daime on the gamma bomb explosion that created the incredible Hulk for a variety of reasons. Part, part of it has to do with the use of technology, uh, just the sheer like electronic amplification and then using music videos and lights and costumes and everything to create really, really, really intense environments. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's fucking fantastic. Um, and, uh, and of course then just the pure raw emotion of the songs themselves. Cause the, the fact of the matter is most of them like, um, and Pache to everybody who writes like, you know, has, has been writing like their own Icaros and stuff like that. But I, I find, I just attended a magic ceremony the other day and this, this woman had come up with this thing and she had this very sort of like sing-songy refrain that she would do. And I don't want to do it because I don't want to, you know, make it back to her. I don't want to insult her. But it just wasn't, it was fine for what it was, right? But you can, the, the, uh, what you can do is you can take these all-time classic pop songs that millions of people have loved, like Atomic, by Blondie mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. repurpose that as a hymn to the goddess. And then you can sing at the end when everybody's singing atomic at the end, they are invoking her presence. And when you do it together, like what <laughs> you're doing is you're singing along with the recording, you know, and among other things, what that does at a very high level is it enables a kind of a, a do you know the term ekagata from, no. from Buddhism? It, it refers to one pointed concentration or meditative absorption. And there's this, there's this trick that you can do when you're on a very big dose, but you're also able to concentrate really, really super strongly and the music's loud enough, is that you, you sing along with the track, but the music is actually louder than, you, than what you can hear coming out of your mouth. But you neurally remap your oral experience of the song onto your own vocal apparatus. In other words, you are singing, but you're hearing the, song, the voice on the track as your voice. Mm -hmm. And you become it overcomes this sub subject object duality. And when you do that, it drops you multiple levels deeper into the, into the collective unconscious. This um, reminds me of what uh, Dennis McKenna and I spoke a while back and he was talking about Terrence and he in the jungle messing with vocalization and yeah, kind of, kind of sinking the vocals with the mushrooms voice, which yeah. is <laughs> radical. Yeah. So what you're really doing is bending the power of the mushrooms to your will. You're taking that magic. <laughs> I'm not fucking. I'm not fucking kidding. Yeah, yeah. It's not easy. It's hard, but but the results are spectacular. 
or they can be, you know, and you're supported by the song, the song itself. You don't even have to be that good a singer as long as you, and, and the song is constantly calling you forward to become a better singer. And that, that's, I mean, there's so many stumbling blocks to me being able to bring this to the world. But one of them is the fact that Americans are not singers and our culture sort of in a lot of ways discourages people from learning to sing. They just are afraid of it. But I've taught myself how to sing over the last five years. And if I can do it, like anybody can do it. Um, it's not it's not to the level that anybody would want to pay to hear me, but I can actually do it. And that makes, like I said, it becomes this control system. And there, I did it. You did. Thank I you. mean, you thank you, thank you for being it. patient. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're kidding. I'm I'm fully attentive. Uh, but I've got, I end, and I have questions and, um, this is kind of where we, thank you for all that. That was uh, informative and inspirational. I, as a clinician, of course, when I was reading your book, I was thinking I have that healing kind of container setting the container, Yeah. but there's something else in this, which you, you are, you're not infantilizing people. I mean, you, you're noting, by the way, here's the disclaimer. This is not for anybody to jump into. You talk in the book about being able to build your skill level, as you say in the five S's, you know, build your skill level, be able to uh, gradually increase your capacity to be in these visionary experiences and to learn the territory. And I immediately think of uh, Stan Groff and Psychonaut, you know, like this, to be, to be learning the nature and dimensions of this interior space and then how to come back, right? Because that's actually one of the parts of the hero's journey is to reemerge into the world of the familiar, to bring back something that is, yeah. is some token or skill. There's no, there's no point to it unless you bring back something for everybody else. Right. So, so that's the disclaimer part. And I think that's important because people are, you said early on when you, in magic, ceremonial magic, you, you kind of design your container around you because these energies, for lack of a better term, can take life of their own and and can can influence other people can affect other people so really being sure that you're creating the container this mm -hmm. reminds me of what people in the kink community do create the container have the agreement talk about what yeah. you want what you don't yeah. want like draw your lines and um and i think so that's very important and i want to say that as we as we are going to dive into Good. some applications here may i may i just interject quickly with a oh. uh I, I can clarify i i have a a clar like a i've got a good metaphor to to address what you're talking about cool. which is i draw in the book i draw an analogy between um you know the the clinical use of, of psychedelics in a therapeutic session is a lot like what a physical therapist does where they're taking a person who is ill or injured and bringing them back to a state of normal functioning and that is like, a, it's like, it's a really careful process. You know what I mean? You've got somebody who's got a, like a hurt knee or a hurt back or whatever, and they do these restorative exercises and they get back to the point where they can walk without pain. Mm -hmm. What I am doing is more, is akin to what a strength and conditioning coach does, which probably isn't surprising given my background, where I'm taking people who are, have normal healthy capacity and by um, subjecting them to carefully titrated doses of stress while they're in an altered state of consciousness, and consenting and fully aware of what they're letting themselves in for. Totally. I can, I can help them develop super normal psychological capacities. And, and the, that's and great. The, I, I, yeah. And I really like, so, okay. I'm going to take that. Cause I got a lot of threads I want to get into. 
uh, you, your use of the term anti-fragile is, I, I really appreciate it. So I want to talk about cancel culture and uh, trigger warnings and all that and how you're taking it on in a, in a different fashion, you know, because the, the, the image is a very safe, contemplative, low-lit, calming space where you have two people that are there with you, that are highly trained, that are taking you through a process. This is the total opposite of that. Yeah, this is fucking organized chaos, and it's every sensory mode, including yes. taking. And we're talking about if anybody knows uh, that's listening and watching, if anybody knows dosage, you're you're talking about five to ten grams of. Well, of, so of, so so that's that's me as a practitioner, yeah. right? Like I I do I do so I my generally speaking, especially in my well, I'll describe what I do in private practice, and then what I what I have done on stage. Right. But in, in private practice, I'm generally working on between seven and 10 grams of cubensis, but that is turbo boosted off the bat with a four gram, uh, a water extract of four gram of Syrian rue. So, so I'm working with Silawaska. And then generally speaking, I do three hits of pot and sometimes vape DMT on that too. Right. And so, but what I'm able to do that and, and maintain nearly perfect lucidity, like I could sit here and talk to you just like this. And, and I have it on, on video like multiple times. I do these on video because in between songs, I come back when I'm working alone and I'll talk to my camera and, be, and narrate it because especially when you do high doses, it's like having a, a night of like continuous REM sleep. There's no way you can remember all that stuff at the end of it. But what you can do is then go back and reconstruct that stuff. Now, when I perform this on stage, I, uh, I usually do five grams plus the Syrian root plus the hits of pot. But what I'm doing, though, is I am performing live and on stage in front of a crowd and like running lights by like on cue by like hitting foot switches on the floor and then in between songs, getting off stage and like changing costumes in the dark and then actually doing the visionary. So there are psycho spiritual exercises that you can do with many of these songs, like specific, you know, I in the um, in the what I call the stereo myth, that's the rock part. So there's the, I told you it goes through the cycle, the stages of the hero's journey, right? Well, when it gets to the stage of the descent into the cave, that's associated a lot of times with the uh, encounter with the shadow. And, and so that's the song that I use for that part. So there's a story that goes with, with, with that thing, right? And in, this, in the story, you are supposed to imagine yourself as a young man named Ged, who's kind of going nowhere in life until he gets uh, kidnapped by this cosmic figure who, who, um, <laughs> he, I, I used to call him Ziggy Christ, but I realized his, uh, but I realized a better name for him is Sizzigy Stardust, like Sizzigy, but Sizzigy Stardust, right? And he takes you aboard his flying saucer and he trans, he tells you that the earth is in, is in mortal danger and you have to save it. And he's, he transports you to this distant planet and drops you off. He's like, here, this is where you're going to find what you need to save the world, but doesn't tell you what it is. And like basically abandons you there. And eventually you find yourself in this, this uh, you find a cave, which and turns, it turns out to be an access tunnel into an underground alien civilization. And at a certain point, you find your way blocked by, you start, I, and as you're wandering through the dark, you start thinking about things from your past. You start <laughs> thinking about your alcoholic mom and like yeah. this racist joke you told and things like that, you know, until you find your way blocked by a hole, a hole in the world in the shape of a man. And if you move this way, he moves this way. If you move this way, he moves this way. He's blocking you, right? And that's your shadow. And then you realize the only way to go to save the world is to go straight into the shadow. And at that point, tools 46 and two starts to play. God. 
And that song is like purpose. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's purpose written for what it is about to come, which is that's what that song is this heavy, really like disturbing song. And if you marry it with images taken from movies like The Ring and stuff like that and the Amityville horror, it becomes real disturbing. But that stuff is there. But you're really there. What you're really supposed to be doing, though, and the point of what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to make is you keep your eyes closed because what you do is you do self, you do an active psychological self-inquiry while you're singing along the song. You say, show me what I don't want to know about myself. And it's just like doing active imagination, except that it's fueled by psilocybin. And you're, but you're doing it while you're singing and dancing along to this song while you're on stage, while you're on a super heroic dose of substantia. And that is what I mean by visionary virtuosity. That is a proof of concept of the level of control that you can develop doing this stuff and that's kind of why i go on stage like like that to show like you can do this this is possible like nobody's done this yet even the ayahuascaros are just sitting there on there i mean i'm not criticizing them they do tremendous work but they're not they're not subjecting themselves to the emotional stress of performing on stage in front of people <clears throat> and and to this point i've been doing the two times that i did it I did it a couple dozen times in a little in a little studio in Seattle, and in Portland I did it twice just to an open audience because I was getting desperate for some way to like try to get these ideas across to people. And how how, um, how did what happened? Well, so you got to understand that this stuff is has been in development. Like I don't have any background in theater, right? And what I the first time I did it in Portland, I was still running it as a, as a as a um I had, I had recorded. <laughs> I had recorded the narrative chapters as audio files and had salted them throughout a Spotify playlist along with the songs, right? But I also had video screens <coughs> on which I showed um, sigils that I had made for each song. So I was literally like, I would hit play on the Spotify playlist and then in between songs and in between like changing costumes, I'd have to try to remember to like hit forward on the PowerPoint presentation <laughs> to advance this thing, right? And so I had done that. And then my friend was like, you know what? It would be a lot easier if you just made that into an MP4 movie. And then you could have the tracks playing as the soundtrack and just have everything lead into one thing to the next, like seamlessly. I was like, oh, that's such a good idea. But when I, what I did was I, I started by laying all the tracks out end to end. And then I put in the sigils and I was like, well, why stop here? Right. There was this, I had had this vision from early, early, early on. I, one of the songs that I work with in the, in the um, stereo myth is this song by a, a thrash metal band called uh, Astronoid. They, it's actually called, they're called Dream Thrash because they've got these really heavy, fast guitars, but these soaring, like, Cocteau Twin-style vocals over the top of it, right? And there's this, during the guitar solo, when I was doing this stuff in the summer of 2017, I would always see um, images from the, uh, the trench dogfight at the climax of Star Wars. I would see, I'd be hearing like mm -hmm. this really fast ripping music go by, but I would be seeing the X-Wings and the TIE Fighters mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And just as an experiment, I found that film clip on YouTube and I put it in and I was like, holy fuck, that's so cool. And then I, then I ended up making music videos for every single song, right? And so that, and what I quickly realized was that you excite, you can excite these emotions in people and then you can shape that excitement by using images to shape the aesthetic of moment. And this just is as a, very therapeutic, by the way. There's, yeah, it's, a, there's it's a concept called Reverie from Ogden. It, this is very much ther ther the bringing in the imagination of the analyst and having that be a part of the, not necessarily overtly, you don't need to be saying like, oh, I'm thinking about, but how do you use where you're going? Like if all yeah. of a sudden as the analyst or the therapist, I'm thinking about quicksand and dying and like what's happening that this person's not conscious of or not 
not bringing into the space and how can you bring them out of it further? And so it's, so just to give you another concrete example. So, you know, so, you know, Jane's addiction. Of course. We're, we, we seem about the same age. So, you know, yes. the song, you, you know, the song three days. I do. Right. Which is this wonderful sort of tribal, like epic 10 minute <clears throat> thing. Right. Um, which fits perfectly for the return. Cause that's the, at that point in the story, you've, you've won the day, you've come through the ordeal, but you need to return back to the original point where you got dropped off. And the song of you that's supposed to accompany your, your imaginary, your imaginary trip back through that alien jungle is this song, Three Days. So the song builds up to a tremendous climax. And then all of a sudden everything drops out and there's this really gentle and ethereal strummed bass part, just like bass chords and like Perry sort of chanting in the background and it's gorgeous. But what I want to do at that point is, is give people an opportunity to connect to the archetype of the mother of sorrows. And so what I do is um, at that point in the video, all of a sudden it cuts to a, a full screen image of William Adolphe Bougereau's La Pieta, which is Mary holding the corpse mm -hmm. of Christ. But the thing about mm -hmm. this painting is it's, it's zoomed way in. So it's just her face. You can see a little bit of his body here, but what you see are her eyes, these haunted, haunted eyes. And then over that, so you've got the, so you've got the gentle strummed bass chords like from the track, and then you've got this image. And then over that, I dubbed in the sound of a woman wailing in grief. And it, the, those things all come together in that moment. And you're just like, oh my God, like you, you cannot help it. And the idea is in that you're framing it and you're thinking as you are contacting the, that, the archetype of the sorrowful mother. And if you're in the right place, it's fucking overwhelming because the energy just surges through you, but it's deeply cathartic. And then you show the emotional flexibility I talk about as being one of the, uh, along with anti-fragility and not yeah. one of the sort of visionary sub-skills. And then you get back into the fucking rocking out afterwards, you know what I mean? And so you go through that. <laughs> so you go through that whole thing. And I forget exactly what got me started on telling you about yeah, all this. It doesn't anyway, matter. It doesn't happens. matter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh, but that's so, yeah, but that's the thing. So it's, it is, it is this environment and it's not entirely alien because people used to take, I used in the nineties, I used to take mushrooms and go to fish shows. You uh -huh. know what I mean? Or people take acid and go to Grateful Dead. There is, yeah. there it's, it's all, and, and people of course take, they take psychedelics and they go to raves and stuff like that. And the, the difference between what I'm doing and that is I'm just taking all that ecstatic joy and I'm yoking it to hard work via structure, stress, and skill. And I'm doing it so that people can, they don't just stay up here the whole way. They go through a full kind of like ascent and descent through the shadow and the ordeal and come out the other side. And in doing so, they are effectively, in my model, along with all those emotions, you can also associate an archetype or an archetypal figure or an archetypal situation, in which case you can basically train archetypes and complexify your character and work on your individuation in real in real time it's it's basically like i said psilocybin fueled active imagination yeah see that's the thing right there like we were yes that that got it uh so go back for a second you said bending the the mushroom to your will or something like that what yeah. do you say more about that well the you know especially when you add in something like syrian root really makes you want to like lie down and just dream you know, but I have an intention. I want to be on my feet experiencing powerful emotions. And so I don't give into that. And in fact, when the early days, when I was first learning how to do this, I'd be dancing and feeling like I was wearing a 50 pound weight vest because mm -hmm. I was actively working against the, the physiological effects of the, uh, of the mushrooms. 
and, and having to effectively strengthen my will to the point where I could stand up against it and, and, and say, like, we're doing this. Not what you say, and not in a disrespectful way, but I'm the human being here and this, and I'm worshiping the goddess with this, or I'm, I'm doing, you know, every, so, so the first church of David Bowie shamanic cabaret is a working prototype <laughs> of this. It's so good. Man. I know. It's, it's, so good. It's, it's fucking ridiculous, but it's awesome. It's people, people always ask like, why do you worship David Bowie? And I'm it's like, so I good. don't. You don't, you don't, except the, you don't worship <laughs> Bowie, but you, what you do do actually at one point is you use the image of Ziggy Stardust as, as, a, uh, as a way to access the energies of the self, the, the, child, the child part of the, of the tripart deity, the self with a capital S. Well, right? this is the symbol and the sign, you know, it points it's, to something. Don't, yeah, don't well, let it. Well, so the way closed. I think about it is what the, so you have these intense rushes of you connect with the divine, you connect with the sacred, and you could just leave it as this abstract experience of energy. But this, you don't take this stuff literally. What you do and what religions do, what theistic religions do, is they create an image of a human being for this, for this energy to inhabit. And so you can relate to it as one person to another. And the way I always describe it to people, it's like holding up a stained glass window to the light of the rising sun. And as spirit passes through that window, it comes alive for you. And so Bowie, as in a, in a specifically as Ziggy Stardust, is, is, a, is a way to bring in the energies of the cosmic Christ. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what Bowie made him to be, even though he didn't understand, like, he, he wasn't thinking about it that way, but you can, but you can use that you know, in that sort of like space age sort of like thing, you can access, you can experience that. And it's also, Bono did this too. It's a way of consciously dealing with the projections because you're getting a lot of Messiah projections. Yeah. So when you, when you are playful with these energies, you move through them as opposed to letting the ego grab a hold yes. and become the Christ. You, you can never lose sight of the fact that religion is a game of make-believe that yields real world results. Yeah. People get in trouble with religion. Traditional religions get in trouble when they take themselves in their stories, literally. The but it's all, yes. it's, 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 it's what I call quasi-fictional or imaginally true. It doesn't matter whether those things actually happen. What matters is that you can use those stories to interpret events and use them as a sort of like instruction manual to achieve a certain kind of supernatural elevation. But once you realize that, then you realize, oh my God, we're free to come up with new stories. We're free to come up with new games. And that's what this is an attempt to do. Yeah. And, and every one of these things is a, is a portrait of, of the divine, the way the artist, the creating artist understands it. None of these, like the, the first church of David Bowie Shamanic Cabaret is the divine, the way I experience it. And then when you go through it, you get to see God through my eyes. But if you were to get inspired and go make one of these, then I would get to see God through your eyes and learn that much more about it. And, it, you know, and, 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 and one of these things can be made to help people experience the divine as void, the way the Buddhists do, mm-hmm. or, the, or, the, or God as planetary matrix, the way the Gaian worshipers do. And I'd be delighted to go through a narrative theatrical experience that gave me something to do with other, alongside other people. I mean, you got to understand my, my background is my gyms were CrossFit gyms and CrossFit deservedly gets a bad rap, but it used to be, a, it was brilliant. And what was brilliant about it was that it taught everyday people how to use like legitimate athletic training methods and then put them in groups to do it together. 
and they would adjust the difficulty level of the movements or the weights or whatever to everybody's individual thing, but they would all go through it together. And in doing so, they would experience communitas. They would have an ordeal mm -hmm. together and then come out feeling bonded. And that became, that's why CrossFit became so incredibly popular because it, it provided that in a way that nothing else does. And that's what this does too. It, it creates these ordeal experiences that you can go through with other people and be like, everybody has their own unique experience of it, but it's the fact that you did it together. That's the important thing. Well, uh, then maybe you can help me out with a question I've been thinking about a lot how we seem to go through these patterns of the something becomes alive and it's rich and it does take us somewhere else and it's powerful and then it becomes reified enough that it becomes concrete then it's a kind of empty dogma that's not just the the path but then you have people go, you know you're doing it the wrong way and you're not doing the first thing first and the third thing third have you thought about how to keep that aliveness in this space yeah you keep making new empty attainments so, so, and I imagine one of the things you do is open up the model, right? That, that, like, as soon as you become proprietary with the model, then that's, that's a closed system. Yeah. But as what I like about what you're doing is it's really inspiring. You said it at one point in the book that if you had somebody with a theatrical background with production budget, uh, you, I mean, we just went to this NASA, like VR program where you were wearing a VR headset, like walking through a space station, it was radical. And as yeah. soon as you get that kind of production value behind you, oh, yeah. I, that's, yeah. it's kind of endless. Oh, oh my God. There's no end to the creativity that you could bring to it. There's two important things here. One is that whatever you're doing actually has to produce some species of gnosis, which uh -huh. is to say direct and immediate experience of the divine, which is as unmistakable for anything else as an orgasm. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's totally it's fucking gobsmacking. If it doesn't like put you on your knees at some point, oh. like it, it's not real. Yeah, that that pure and yeah. all and terror and all the all the emotions of it. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. got to have that. And then the other part is you just you just keep telling new stories. Like I wrote, I have a I have another one. I wrote a, a God, this one will probably get me assassinated at some point. I wrote a I wrote a. <laughs> I wrote a pagan Gnostic retelling of the uh, of the Jesus myth, <laughs> in which it, that's a mashup of Moulin Rouge, and Romeo Ju and Juliet, and oh. Romeo Juliet and Jesus Christ Superstar. This in is which, so great! I'm which, so refreshed right now. <laughs> good, I'm glad. In which, well, check this out. This is fucking awesome. <laughs> in which, in which Jesus, Jesus at age 18 is just this kid roaming through the countryside, like. He's like, he works in his dad's carpentry shop, but he, he, he's getting really good at like painting little like, you know, filigrees and leaves and stuff on it. And in order to do that, he needs to gather pigments. So he goes out and gathers minerals out in the desert, like lazurite and limonite and stuff like that. And then, but he finds this flower, this orange flower that seems to almost be glowing. And just experimentally, he, he takes one of the flowers and he nibbles on it, oh, it tastes pretty good. And he, so he takes a handful and sticks them in his pouch. And as he's wandering through the afternoon, he just keeps nibbling on them. And then gradually he starts to realize that things seem, they look a little different. <laughs> things, everything's, everything seems to be a little bit more there than, than it was, you know what I mean? And, and then he's, he finds this, um, he ends up finding this, uh, this oasis where no oasis should be. And, but he's having too good a time to worry about it. And he, when he kneels down to drink the water, he sees the angel Gabriel in the form of a dozen rings of burning brass, you know, with a thousand eyes and all that stuff, right? And Gabriel tells Jesus what his job is going to be for the next 15 years. And Jesus is like, 
fuck that and fucking runs for it right <laughs> and so and goes and goes as finds his friends and tells them he wants to visit the brothel two towns over and they've been trying they've been going there for years and <laughs> jesus for whatever reason didn't want to do it but now he's like i'm gonna fornicate and god will not want me anymore mm-hmm. so they bring him to this brothel and mm-hmm. so in the in the in the critical difference of this story it, it plays off the fact that mary magdalene and the virgin mary share the same name in this mm-hmm. version of the story when Mary became pregnant at age 12, nobody believed her story about the angelic visitation and she didn't get married. Her marriage fell through and they sent her away to have the baby. And then the baby was taken away and she was sent to work in a brothel. So when, when Jesus and his friends, so now she's 31 years old and she owns, she's the owner of the brothel. Um, and now when, Je- when Jesus and his friends bring him to the brothel, he meets this woman and he is absolutely poleaxed. She's the most beautiful woman she's ever, he's ever seen. And she feels the same way. They have this instantaneous sexual attraction, but it's Jesus and his own mother. And what that plays off of is this, yeah, but that's a very old idea yes. in, in, in pagan yes. mythology, right? And so they, they go up to his room and at first, like he can't perform. And so she, to get him to, to relax, she gives him a glass of wine. And just without thinking of it, he takes a handful of the leaves, which are now dried in his pouch and crumbles them into the wine and they drink it together. And they end up having a vision of themselves. Um, they get high and they make love. And while they're making love, they have this vision of themselves as the goddess and her consort, the dancing God. And they realize who they really are and that they have this mission. And so when they come to, they still remember that. And they start throwing parties at the brothel where they serve wine, like spiked with these flowers and dozens and then hundreds of people were coming out on on friday nights to go to have these parties and remember that they are god and then the rabbis start noticing that people aren't showing up for synagogue anymore so they get agitated and they they tell the sanhedrin and the sanhedrin complain to the romans and the romans come and take jesus away and crucify him but they ignore mary because she's just a woman but on the day of jesus when jesus dies um mary has his body brought to a, a grave and then she tells her friends that she's going to stay the night in the grave with him and that they should roll the stone in front of the uh in front of the grave and they don't want to do it but she 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 makes them and when they're gone she takes out a wine skin and fills a goblet and then puts a lethal dose of the flowers into the uh into the wine and then drinks it down and then dies by his side now when jesus died he was so disfigured that the the demons of the underworld didn't meet him and the, the king of hell told them to tear him to shreds and hide his body like all over the underworld. And when Mary shows up, though, she knows who she is. She's the great goddess. And she crosses the river and all the demons know her and they shout with joy for her presence among them. And she goes through the whole underworld, collects all the pieces of Jesus's body and assembles them, but then realizes that something's missing. And so she summons the king of hell and she says, where is Jesus's penis? And he takes out this elaborately carved wooden box and he flips it open and there it is, the divine phallus sitting on this bed of purple velvet. And he goes, you mean this? And she says, yes. And when she reaches for it, he takes it and pops it into his mouth and chews it up and swallows it down. And he says, well, I guess you're out of luck. Your boyfriend's never leaving here now. And she says, is that so? And she reaches up and she snaps off one of his horns and she takes Jesus's body and puts it on the throne of hell and then affixes the horn between his legs. And she says, there, better than new and then she takes a giant breath she fills her 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 body with the with the essence of hell and death and then blows with all her might into the horn and blows life back into jesus and then he comes back to life and then it turns out that everybody starts laughing and the king of hell himself starts tearing his 
skin apart. And it turns out that he's their oldest child. And that this has been a whole, this has been a play that the divine family has put on. And she leads a processional out of hell with everybody in their wake to the strains of it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll by ACDC. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Holy fuck. I, you know, that's one of the best stories I've heard in a long time. <laughs> I know. So just, so just imagine, imagine that made as a movie, like by Baz Luhrmann. Imagine Baz Luhrmann who did like Moulin Rouge. Oh, yeah. You know, that, him remaking Jesus Christ Superstar with that story and then going to a show where you, you dance to songs like um, Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones and Lady Marmalade by LaBelle and like, um, fuck, I use Could, Could This Be Magic by Barry Manilow. The, the, I use the, the part where Mary, Mary is harrowing hell is an 18 minute doom metal song by this band called Yob called Beauty and Falling Leaves, which is fucking amazing. But each of these songs and the videos themselves are the movie, you know what I mean? That are indicating like what the emotional, it's a musical, it's, it's a jukebox musical. And so then, and you're in a, you're in a ceremony environment where everything about the lighting and the, and the cause you're surrounded by um, instructors, a cadre of instructors who are modeling for you how to interact with the songs, how to dance, like how to feel. Cause sometimes some of these songs aren't that easy to dance to. You can watch somebody else do it and be like, oh, I can kind of do that. And so it's all designed to create these aesthetic moments that you experience alongside everybody else. So this has been what's dominating my, I, my mind for the last five years. And as you might expect, I'm not having the easiest time getting people like on board with it. And yet to but, me, it's, it's the obvious future of where we need to I come. I don't understand. If anybody is listening who has access to people with money who want to make investments into things, yeah. please contact Sean. This would be wonderful to see. It'd but be fucking amazing. You've got a lot of we've got one major problem here. Freud, Jung, all these psychoanalysts wrote about incest in ways that was extremely valuable and very important to pay attention to. And it was I mean, I guess it's part of our materialist assumptions right now that that things are so concretized externally, <clears throat> as opposed to looking at the eros as a connecting principle and not erotic in the way that we've totally fucked up the term but but that that's the first issue that you know when you see these gods that are fucking everybody and they're they're mothers and children and then there's rapes and all the, these are c connections these are relationships these are dynamics that are presented yeah. in allegorized form that evokes a kind of emotionality and i i think it's totally amazing that is one of the best stories i've heard in a long time oh, thank you very much thanks. for that well and, and what, what this art does, so you're right, like in a lot of ways, like the American audience wouldn't be ready for that, but that's no reason to dumb it down. Not at what all. It, what, yeah. it, what it is yeah. is a reason to educate them and, and give people like, yes. look, this is actually a totally common agree. theme in mythologies around yes. the world. Why is that? Because it says something psychologically. Yes. And you, and you can't, you can't take it literally, but yet there's a, there's a scene where like, um, it, like in, in the Lady Marmalade song in the music video in my head, Jesus, Mary is basically chasing Jesus around the room. You know what I mean? Cause she's, cause he's unable, he's impotent and he's terrified, but she's like, I'm going to work my wiles on you. And you are, you are internally feeling this incredible, it's fucking hilarious because it's so uncomfortable because <laughs> you know, she's his mom. Like there's a yeah. sense of dramatic irony there. You know what I mean? Like this is so wrong. Mm -hmm. And yet it's like, but so it requires you to be a grown up. I, do, I just, I think that we can call people 
to higher levels of, of sophistication. I, you know what I mean? That's what I see is like the being in the, in the religion of the future is yes. getting people to abandon literalism and just to grow the fuck up, you know, and like, and, and get come and be, and, and you know what, if you hear about this and it really makes you uncomfortable or you find it blasphemous, don't go. It's not for you. You know what I mean? You can go to go to some other thing, you know, like whatever, whatever it's going to be. But that's every artist would have the opportunity to make those kinds of statements and, and make challenging and rewarding art. Uh, you walk. So earlier you were talking about this line. I'm, I'm imagining that you were <laughs> questioning your sanity. Uh, I, I imagine that you've done that a few times. And there's a quote from Lionel Corbett that comes up. I've probably said this a couple of times on the podcast. He says the the, the fundamental difference between a religious, like a a, a a true capital T, I guess, religious experience and psychosis is that people who are having a religious event know who to share it with and who not to share it with. The 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 urge to the prophet to sing from the mountaintop, which is that kind like I have to pro, I have to proclaim this. And that it is then taken literally is what people in a state of psychosis without the ego strength to differentiate. You've probably developed a great deal of psychological strength as a result of yeah. these practices. But but there, if you're feeling anxious listening to this, anybody out there, there are very understandable reasons why. Like this is walking a line of uh, a, a fantastic and fascinating line that is not necessarily reserved for everybody. No. And what I'm, what I'm really, what I'm doing is I've got a complete imaginal reality in my head. Mm -hmm. And when you bring, and I'm trying to instantiate it in consensus, reality. I'm trying to grow mm -hmm. it in consensus mm -hmm. reality. People don't like having their realities challenged. It's deeply no. discomforting and they'll retreat yeah. back into the bulwark of their understanding of how the world works, you know? And even within my trying to be judicious about who I tell about this stuff, I've lost friends. You know, and even oh, even my family, like they don't want to, they don't want to hear about it. My, you know, my my dad is a you know a priest. My brother is the uh, is the director of the American religion of uh, the American Museum of Religion at the Smithsonian. You know, like they don't want to know about this stuff because um, it's a live it's a live wire. It's really yeah. you can be a, you can be religious. <laughs> you know what I mean, and not have anything sort of approaching this sort of like high intensity. I've seen the burning bush. <laughs> Yes. kind of thing you know and actually to be so if i can if i can talk to you just as a moment as a, as a therapist right and give me give me a moment of uh of uh I'll, I'll, i don't know I'll, I'll send you a pizza or something i'll try to make it up for you <laughs> on the couch but, sure so 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 i i am in i am actually in this deeply uncomfortable place where i go and i have these experiences these outrageous ex visionary experiences. And along with them comes this assurance that things are going to work out, like that, that I will get the resources that I need in order to uh, make this a reality. What, what, whether that looks like coming into money or finding like an investor or finding mm -hmm. a group of people who are already working along similar lines, it doesn't really matter to me. But the longer I go, uh, so I will, so full candid, full candid, obviously I've, I put I put videos of myself in like in in ecstasy on YouTube. Like I'm not afraid of anything at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm like I'm I, I that was a line I crossed a couple. It took time mm -hmm. to get to that point of being like, if I don't believe in this 100, how could I possibly ask anybody else to? But that wasn't an easy place to get to. 
sure. you know, I would, I had, I had returned to the video game industry a few years ago and I was working as like a, like a, like a, you know, middle manager, junior executive type. And, uh, and I left that job in February for over a year. I had known that I needed to quit that job. That it was sort of like, I really, I liked the people that I was working with were nice and having a middle-class income and everything was great, but it was also sort of like poisoning my soul. I, I really found working with video games to be antithetical to my values because I want people to be in their bodies and to feel emotions. And I'm actually more and more convinced that, that phones and games are, are anesthetizing people to mm -hmm. a large extent. And I, mm -hmm. I, I, I was starting to feel like I was working for Philip Morris or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And so in February, I realized the time had come to kind of take a Kierkegaardian leap of faith and be like, I think this is real. I think that I, without being too literal about it or anything, like I, I actually think there are higher order beings that are trying to, and I'm not the, I don't think, I also don't think I'm the only person doing this. I think that, that prophet people, the prophetic archetype gets activated during times of civilizational crisis and that, um, that whatever is above us sends ideas down here to try to pull the society in a different direction, right? We're kind of in this, for my mind, this sort of like civilizational nosedive. And we need to have this sort of reboot at a, at a spiritual level in order to pull us away from that. And the existing, um, what I call mass enlightenment strategies have failed to this. So we need, so we need new ones. And I got one, but I'm not the only one. There's probably dozens of people around the world who are having similar experiences and are also trying to bring this stuff in. And that's all fine and dandy to sort of entertain as, a, as an ongoing fantasy and like live that out in imaginal reality. But when you start trying to bring that into the real world, like eventually like quitting your job and, and living on savings so you can write books and, all, and, and concentrate on getting ready for the next sort of step in it, then things start to get uncomfortable yeah. because there's, you never, because you're not delusional, you know for a fact that there's a chance that this isn't going to work. The, I, I used the analogy, I was talking to my friend last night. I, I often compare myself to Roy Neary in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm. Have you, you mm -hmm. seen that movie, mm -hmm. right? So imagine, so Roy Neary sees a UFO, sees a couple of them, and then has this image in his head, right? He doesn't know what it is. He keeps trying to, to sculpt, he sculpts it in like shaving cream and in mashed potatoes. And eventually he ends up building this full-size sculpture in his living room of this geological thing. And then he finds, and he doesn't know what it means. It's driving him crazy. He just knows that it's got, he's got to make this thing and find it somehow. And then he finds out that it's actually Devil's Tower in Wyoming. And he's like, oh, I've got to go there. And so he goes there. And, and then in the context of the movie, he sees he's, he's there for the event when the mothership lands, right? And he gets taken away. So imagine you're Roy Neary and you go through all that stuff. You, you find the image, you find it's like, sort of confirmed by, by objective reality. And then you make it through the whole cordon of the army and everything. And you even make it to the alien base. You're there, you're waiting for it. And then they don't show up because who knows why? Because maybe their mothership got hit by an asteroid or something like mm -hmm. that, but, it's, but it just doesn't happen, right? Like then what? <clears throat> you've, given, you've given everything to it and it didn't work. You know what I mean? And that's a, that's a fairly, that, that has been my work this summer is sort of like mm -hmm. living in that, that space of profound precariousness. And, and every time I go back, it's almost, I'm almost leery to, I tried to do a, at this point, I'm down to like one ceremony a month for a while, for a while there, I was doing it three or even four times a month when I was really trying to get my legs under me and figure out what it was I was trying to do and develop a skill with this. Now I'm down to once a month and 
I know what's going to happen when I go in once a month. I'm going to go in and I'm going to fight these demonic forces that try to stop me at every step of the way until I finally break through into what I call belief space. And belief space is where you just, you leave Maya or mundane reality behind or specifically the idea that the mundane is the only reality and you enter a reality where the goddess is the encompassing reality. And then all of a sudden you are suffused with energy and it's so easy and so delightful. And then you can open up to these fantastic visions that are, you know, basically like, like video game versions of, uh, 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 who is, who is the, uh, the famous, the Blake, William Blake, right? You know what I mean? Like of these Blake, imagine like video game versions of like Blake illustrations, like mixed with like perfect, you know, VR simulations of cathedrals and stuff like that, you know? And you just have these utterly gobsmacking visions in which you come out like basically on fire, like, you know, smoke still rising from your head and shoulders and like being assured that you're on the right track and you're doing the right thing. And you, you come back into this place where you're all alone with it. You're the only person for whom this is real, you know? It's uncomfortable. <laughs> well, two things come to mind. The, the boundary walkers are always, they're not allowed in the city. Yeah. You can't, you can't be witchy and live in the marketplace. And the, the other piece that I think is important, did, did you ever stumble into letters to a young poet from uh, Rilke? No. He's got a great, this is a really cool, I, I just always remember this when I bump up against stuff that, um, that I find to be really difficult. This one particular passage where he's, he, he, Rilke is having this exchange with a, with a young poet who's basically started a correspondence with Rilke and he's, he's saying, man, I'm really trying to make it. I'm, you know, what do you think? What do you think about this poem? What do you think about that poem? I just submitted this poem to this editorial. And Rilke says, you need to ask yourself in the dark of night uh, why you write. And if, if, the, if the answer is a resounding, because I must, then you situate your life as if the stars depend on it and you yeah. live every single waking moment and every single non-waking moment to that effect. Yeah. I just think that's it. I mean, I feel very inspired by what you're talking about. Well, thank it's you. Just... I, well, I was just going to say two things really quickly. I, I just feel like if there's a one in a billion chance that this is all real at some level, even if it's not exactly the way that I think, but at some level, this could have a societal impact that I'm morally obligated to see it through. I, I just, I just have to, right. you know, that's, that's and no matter what the personal cost may end up being. But having said that, I know we, we've been talking a long time, but I wanted to bring the conversation to the things that to talk about, let's, let's talk about some pop culture figures. Well, um, I, uh, before we do, I want to, uh, uh, le, yeah, let's orient because we've got about 22 minutes and I want to be conscientious of that because I want to be able to, to, to close it out. Um, the oh the other piece was the Apollonian Dionysian split here. I mean we you're you're really talking about how you. I mean there's a reason why Eleusis is this hidden esoteric place anybody can play if they pay, but it's off the beaten path all the way down. It's two times a year. Secrets are guarded by a family dynasty for thousands of years. That's the kind of current that you're playing in. So it certainly is. Um, I think about this a lot. Like, do we need to have esoteric traditions? Can can that which is esoteric be brought out into the popular public spaces and still maintain the kind of threads that it maintained in its esoteric container? Yeah, um, I think as as the human race matures, the answer is yes. 
I think it's I think it's time to bring that stuff into the mainstream. I mean, my one of the one of the visions that I had as a consequence of doing that David Bowie working was I saw this sort of theatrical thing taking place in like in like in nightclubs, you know, like these sort of futuristic nightclubs. Yeah. But then I then I saw really, really clearly I was up in the air and looking down at what looked like a soccer stadium. And there was like, you know, 50,000 people there or something. Mm -hmm. And they were all they were watching this spectacle. The way I describe it in the book is like a cross between like Cirque du Soleil and an old school Van Halen concert and the laser light show at the planetarium. But the thing was, I knew that they were all there on mushrooms to to engage with a spectacle that was designed to create in them a direct experience of the divine. And I was thinking about what the society would have to look like that could produce 50,000 individuals that could be on high doses of mushrooms and behave themselves in a way that, and realize like, oh, that's where I want to live. I want to live in that society because you have to be a fucking grown up to do that. Excuse my, excuse my French. Um, Forgive me, majesty. I'm a vulgar man. Um, (laughs) Me too. No, that's, that's actually that's that's so that's a hole in my game like my my goal my thing is like when you swear reflexively like that i mean you're either being mindful or you're being mindless it's kind of a binary thing and when i allow myself to sort of get carried away and use that kind of language without really thinking about it, i'm kind of being mindless so i need to do better but in any event that's that's what i so i i realize that i'm treading into some taboo territory and in a way like being very 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 punk about this, mm-hmm. you know, but that's absolutely my goal. That's 100% who I want to be. I don't think it works any other way. I mean, it yeah. reminds me of the, uh, the, you know, the the capacities of a teenage brain. And the, I heard years ago, there there was this study that was done on the whole entire drug campaign. Like, this is your brain on drugs and stay away from that stuff. And it didn't work. And not only did it not work, it said to teenagers, this is where you take risk to a brain that is predisposed to poke, punch at, rip down any kind of conventional norms because that's how we get innovation. We're basically saying, here's your pathway. What, just to complete the thought, what did work was a shaming tactic. Don't be that guy, don't be that girl. They have images of like somebody drinking too much and vomiting all over their shirt and being carried out by an attractive like woman or something. Mm-hmm. And so that 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 works on the teenage brain because it's socially connected and uh, almost totally socially connected. So, so there is a certain, so the, uh, the archetype of the orphan is, is the, is the punk rocker, you know, like the, I'm, I'm, I'm separated from the typical developmental pathway. I've been a kind of taboo oriented figure because conventional norms feel foreign to me. I don't know how to speak that language. So I've got to pave a pathway that there is no pathway. Like it's my pathway because there's no pathway and everybody right. else walks the pathway that is already written and laid out for them. And so, yeah. yeah, it's got, I think it has to be punk. You, you have to, in order to call your society in a new direction, you need to stand outside it. Yes. That's, that's what it, that's I, what it comes I, down. That's what I it comes down to. Totally. And this is you why know. Nietzsche was all about Dionysus and looking yeah. at the figure. Yeah. And that's, I mean, Nietzsche is a really important, I mean, I've got, that, that's, ah, you know, look at that. <laughs> but but I also have that. What does that one say? Oh yeah. Oh, look at you. That's yeah. A, yeah. That's so those so they're my governing things, right? And so and actually, yeah. in the context of the cabaret, this means a morphati. Uh, like the this this expresses yes. a certain a certain way to say yes, and it even makes a why to the to the goddess and her obscure plans for our existence. And yeah. we use this as a sort of wild child affirmation of that all it's like this it's sort of this deeply meaningful thing and that's what 
entheotainments can be is this repurposing of popular of the energy of popular culture to help to help bring in uh, an awareness of the sacred. Well, and my struggle, you know, when I was doing my dissertation, is that academics don't write about popular culture. It's 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 a taboo to write about yeah. that. So when I head in there to do work on, um, I mean, I was reading a, a dissertation in preparation for my work. There, I forget her name. Sorry, she wrote a dissertation on archetypes in popular music, and she looked at everybody from Guns N' Roses and Metallica to N.W.A. and uh, U2, David Bowie, Joni Mitchell. I said that earlier, and like what what's enacting or what enactments are happening in the relationship between the performer and the audience yeah. and what kind of energetic dynamics are playing out within each individual? Why do they seek that out? Why does it tend to be male, um, uh, not really nurtured folks who are going to these like heavy metal concerts and thrashing around and punching each other? Like, if we take morality out of it and say that's bad, what's happening there? And why are these people, so, they, they're happy to do it. They want to yeah. do it. They, yeah. So I love the fact that you're, you're mining through popular culture. It's well, that's, like rich. Pop, popular culture is where religious, the religious impulse has been displaced in, our, in, in the United well States and in, in yeah. North America. I've had this discussion with my dad many times. I would tell him, dad, when you see films of the Beatles, uh, debut on the ed sullivan oh, show in 1962 yeah. and you're watching those kids scream themselves in a frenzy that is religious ecstasy and that and like when you encounter the goddess in your in your in the context of a high you know deep visionary experience that's the reaction that it, it it's like it's 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 uncontrollable that's the only rational thing to do is to like is to scream yourself like thank you thank you you know what i mean like but that's what it is and that's been um, and, and people like Bowie and Jim Morrison and, and stuff, mm -hmm. they, they mm -hmm. recognized that and played with it, but they were using it. They didn't, they weren't actually religious themselves. You know what I mean? And they were, they were willing to sort of play that messianic figure, but not, they weren't going to, they weren't using that power to point people toward their own personal experience of the divine. But in a sense, like one, you know, the way that you play the cabaret is that you role play, that you are mm -hmm. the member of a religion of a religion of the 23rd century. And as a member of this religion, you believe that God incarnated in the form of popular music during the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Like there's something about the music that came out during that period that's specifically uh, powerful and enables you to have like deep visionary experiences. And I think in a lot of ways, we sort of feel as our culture has moved into this decadent phase, like you can see it everywhere where we're just repeating the same old ideas again and again and again. It's been a yeah. long time since there's been anything innovative or particularly interesting in popular music, especially compared to that, that, uh, that epis, I don't know what the, the ground zero of that explosion, which would have been right around say like 1970, 71. When you look at the top 10 lists from the, those years, it's unbelievable. Like the, the quality of the album after album, after album, mm -hmm. after album there. And so it's easy to, I have this I concept that's in AP psychedelics of, you know, Freud had primary and secondary process thinking, right? And primary process thinking is magical con is uh is magical thinking, where you think that you're you're you can wish something and make it happen out in reality, right? And then secondary process thinking is is when the ego is adapted to reality and realizes that wishes don't make things come true. The tertiary process thinking, 
if, if I may be granted this, is where it's, it's the cultivation of magical consciousness where things mean what you want them to mean. And that's the, and that's the essence of religious belief right there. And so you can, you can actually convince yourself that there's something special about that music. And it's observable because you just get better effects when you're doing phonomancy with it than with, than with other stuff. You've said magic a couple of times, and I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, Jesus, Sean, we could talk for like five I hours. Know. Um, <laughs> talk to me about your background in magic and how you how you. I I I I don't really have any background in magic. I I I have tried. I've experimented with chaos magic, with doing sigil magic. I watched mm-hmm. Grant Morrison is this famous comic book writer, and he made a speech yeah. at the 1999 Disinfo conference that got me started. I mean, I've been really stuck in life for a while. And so I've been willing to try anything to try to like figure out like where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to do. So I messed around with, with sigil magic and never really got anything except that one incredible fucking visionary experience that mm-hmm. that, that initial, um, you know, David Bowie sigil caused. I regard magic as a, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm certainly not going to dispute that other people feel like they have, are, are, are somehow able to shape their reality by, by doing rituals and stuff like that. I haven't been able to do it. And yet I recognize magic in the sense that magic for me is an eruption of a capital M mystery that is eternal into the everyday world. It's this sense of like, you can feel it. It's this, it will give you frisson, right? It gives you the goosebumps, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, and it's a, um, a sense of wonderful connection in, in the, uh, to, uh, to a larger reality that is now flowing through you. You're no longer just isolated in this, in this world of separate objects and everything, you know what I mean? But you're part of this, mm-hmm. this flow and, and, and not in a, uh, and not in, in a simply a unitive way, but in a way that empowers you. I can't express, I could, this is a topic I could talk about endlessly. I start these ceremonies as myself, like laboring under a really high dose of psychedelic and forcing myself to like get up on my feet and do this work. And it's often really, really difficult. There are forces that you meet in the unconscious I use the term resistance. I borrowed it from Stephen Pressfield um, being this sort of idea of there's something that wants to, well, for him, it's something that wants to stop you creatively. But um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes wrote Women Who Run With the Wolves calls it the natural predator of the psyche. And it's, it's the devil. For, that's what it's mythologized as, right? It's the, there's a force in consciousness that wants to kill you. And, it's, and it wants to kill our society in general. And I actually have really come to believe this. It's not a literal fork and tails devil. And yet you will see it represented in visionary consciousness as stuff like, um, like flies and vermin swarming around or like weird things like, um, I've, I mean, I've seen a bazillion things like a gorilla in a business suit or like luchadors in these riveted steel masks. Or sometimes it presents as, as like sweat-suited townies from Massachusetts. And sometimes it's just like rusted fences and like dirty pails and like scrubby like lots, you know what I mean? In the sense of like, who the fuck do you think you are? Think you're better than me? You know what I mean? That kind of like dead, dumb menace. And that is a force that is built into this level of reality. And, and I have to get past that stuff and it's fucking hard. And it's, you're, you're doing it with your own energy until you're not, until all of a sudden there'll be this release and all of a sudden you'll be flushed with this energy flowing through you and all of a sudden everything's easy and you feel totally safe. It's the greatest thing ever. But sometimes that can take like three and a half hours to get there. And you're like literally the whole time you've just been suffering and suffering and suffering. But sometimes you get there after an hour and a half, you know, um, that's the, that is magic to me. That sense of, of energy flowing through you that you simply direct to accomplishing your goals rather than using your own energy 
to get there. Oh, thank you. Um, the other thing, and I know we only have a few minutes um, and I want to be able to close out, but you did a letter to Houston Smith. Yeah. And, and I loved it at the very end. And I know, it, like, again, we could talk for hours, but could you summarize your, your, um, the, the, the main idea? Of yeah, this, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to. And thank you for, thank you so much for reading that far. Only less than, I would say less than six people in the world have actually read that entire book. Oh, I read it cover point. to cover. Yeah. That's awesome. And it's a short book too. It's only 36,000 words. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like late anyway. So what I said, so in, what's that? It flows. I, I, oh, thank I really you. I'm I tried to make it a pop culture thing. You know what I mean? I, I want to be the Stephen King of shamanism. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I mean, I, I've got a bunch of jokes like that. I want to be the Greg Glassman of shamanism. That's Greg Glassman <laughs> founded CrossFit. And I want to be the, uh, I, who is, who's the guy that made The Room? You know that movie, The Room? No, no. Oh, that's a topic for another time. Anyway, so Houston Smith was this professor of world religions at Berkeley. And he wrote, a, he was there at the early days of the, of the Harvard psilocybin experiment. He was there in there with Tim Leary and, and, uh, and Ram Dass, Richard Alpert. And um, he wrote a book called Cleansing the Doors of Perception in which he republished some of his early writings about the religious possibilities that psychedelics afforded. And he, he claimed at the time that, that although psychedelics could cause religious experiences they didn't seem to give rise to the religious life because they didn't uh they didn't inculcate a sense of faith and discipline they didn't call they didn't call upon faith and discipline um and so and he didn't see any any uh sort of evidence of that and so then i wrote a reply to him a repost if you will and what i said was um that I had come to realize that all religions were games of make-believe that could yield real-world results, right? I mentioned this earlier on. And at this point, I refer to that as a para-reality game, as a like paranormal para-reality, and uh, as opposed to an augmented reality game, which is what I described it as in the book. And a, and a para-reality game is a, is a complete out-of-the-box system of beliefs and practices designed to enable and condition and experience of the sacred while creating the conditions for community, all right? So that's that's, and that's what all religions basically are. They're just stories like Jesus rose from the dead after three days. That's just a story. And to the extent that we have in this, in the same is true about the, uh, the, the, the Quran being dictated to, by the Archangel Gabriel to Muhammad or the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree for 49 days and then being tempted by Mara and then passing. Like these are stories written off in decades after the fact by people who weren't actually there. Um, and so, and, and so lacking, but as, as Carl Sagan says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So lacking a time machine to go back and actually video these events, we just have to take their word for it. But the best you can say about them is they're quasi-fictional. They're sort of made up or they're imaginally true and that's all they need to be. And what, what adherents of religions do is, is they, they make a choice, whether unconscious or not, to believe these stories are true and then pattern their behavior on the on the stories and they use them as interpretive models of reality and then they have experiences which we re then reinforce their idea that these things are true but once you realize the fact that you're just you're you're playing a game the difference between what i'm doing and what they're doing is we realize and i say we me and the fictional people who are doing this with me we understand that this is a we're playing a game but it's a uh, if i can just i'll just briefly read the uh, the thing where the, the quote um, 
The phonomantic method and its empty attainments set chemically induced religious experiences in the context of a new kind of faith that is no less earnest or life-changing for being self-aware that it is quasi-fictional. It's a game that becomes reality the moment it puts you up close and personal with the goddess. Credo quia iocus et quia operator, which means I believe because it's fun and because it works. And that's kind of a playoff of the famous quote from Tertullian, I believe because it's absurd, right? And then, and then on the other side is, is that, so that's faith. And then the discipline part, it says here, achieving phonomantic gnosis is not easy. It's the result of disciplined efforts made to develop skill with psychedelic medicine. It demands courage and sacrifice. It depends on your ability to realize your potential across eight dimensions of self. It is an answer to the not always welcome call of spirit. When Houston Smith wrote that nowhere in Western civilization could he find an example of entheogenic mysticism being joined to, quote, an exercise of the will toward fulfilling what the disclosures ask of us, he may have been correct at the time. I hope I provided evidence that what he was looking for has now arrived. Mm. So, well, so there's, there is something here about, uh, I was chatting with Michael Winkleman last, uh, Michael Winkleman last week, and the metaphor tends to show up about the television set, as you've heard by reading Huxley. The television set is the the riverbed. You know, the the show is the story. There, there's something like these stories are so potent and tap into some kind of aspect of the structure of reality that, uh, and our linguistic. Sim- symbol creating structure of our own kind of brain and mind pour enormous power into these yeah these stories. we so, will always be stories storying in a story yes yeah and the problem with tr- with the traditional religions is that they have uh for a lot of people those stories no longer entice they no longer right. inspire and so ultimately what phonomancy the phonomantic method and empty attainments and power reality games are is a religion for people who wouldn't get who wouldn't be caught dead in church it's a way for for these people who are otherwise alienated and estranged from an experience of the sacred to have one and realize that that's the only thing that's real and that's all that ultimately matters does does it work does the practice you're engaging with get you up close and personal with that life-changing experience sure i i got thank you so much for writing the book and for doing what you do. This is a this is a really unique conversation and and process. I I, I just feel a great sense of gratitude that uh, that you're doing this. Thank you so much for being an engaged and sympathetic listener. I really it means the world to me. So, yeah. yeah. Do you want to direct anybody anywhere? I'll certainly have links and all that. Is there anywhere people? Can... Um, just if, if if you can buy my book, it's it's nine ninety nine on Amazon. Yep. And uh, and then you can. On the back, there's that my I have virtually no social media presence. Uh, there's a website called popularpsionics.com. That's it's just a placeholder for for the for the my this book and then this one, which is my my uh, my spiritual autobiography. <laughs> and of course, you get the visual pun of that, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I sure do. I yeah. honestly think that if if this actually ends up working, there will be like people writing like PhDs just to like dig out all the, you know, popular yes, references, culture yes. references. Cause you basically need one in order to get a joke like that. Um, but my, my personal email is at the bottom of it. And if cool. you want to get in contact and like chat me up, I'm happy to talk to anybody. I'm happy to try to, if anybody is been doing this, been gained any sort of um, comfort with psychedelics and are, are at all intrigued by this approach. I can, I can give you some, 
uh, guidelines on, on how to get started with it, you know, just in terms of personal experimentation and then developing like these, these ideas of like concentration and um, clarity and self-control in that, in that state. Well, thank you for this. This is fantastic, man. It's Thank you so much.